Hello and welcome to a very special 25th episode edition of 8 More Miles, the Louisville Metro Council District 8 podcast. This is Councilman Brandon Cohn. It's Monday morning, April the 14th, and my guest today is a man who really needs no introduction. He's been uh, Kentucky's third district congressional representative since 2007. He is the House Budget Chair for the 116th Congress of the United States of America. Uh, Congressman John Yarmouth, welcome to our show. Thank Thanks, you for Brandon. being here. Oh, it's great to be with you. Yeah, it's really exciting. Uh, I, I will just note, not to take us on a somber start, but one of the reasons that you're here and in town this morning, and, and we both have an obligation after this, is to attend the funeral of uh, a close friend and former uh, staffer of yours, Krista Robinson. I just wanted to give you one minute to to say something about Krista. So people who, who live in the Highlands and might not have known her, she was Councilman Barbara Sickton, Smith's legislative aide, can just know a little bit about her. Yeah, well, Krista was a truly remarkable person. She worked uh, on my staff for 12 years. Uh, she did a lot of outreach for the staff, but she primarily worked on cases, which means she worked on uh, problems that people were having with the government. And uh, if anything characterized Krista is that that was what she was about, was helping people. She was one of the most selfless people you would ever meet. Um, she literally saved lives, uh, people who were on the verge of death but needed to get a clearance from Medicaid or get a, uh, some kind of official certification she worked on. And uh, she was always um, reaching out to Everybody she knew, wishing them a happy birthday by text, uh, uh, wishing them happy Valentine's Day, you name it. Uh, she greeted you uh, through text or email. And sadly, she died at 46 years old, uh, a blood clot. And um, so the only blessing was she, she died uh, peacefully without suffering. But uh, she's a terrible loss to the community, a brilliant woman, and um, just a, a great soul. Yeah, I know we're we're all saddened by that, and I mention uh, Krista just because she is one of literally countless number of public servants who might not be elected to office, who might not be on TV, but who, like you said, the work they do day in and day out, in some cases saves people's lives, and in other cases just makes their lives better. Uh, and I'll note also that we're joined as always by uh, my legislative aide, who's also a former Yarmouth staffer, <laughs> Jasmine Weatherby. Uh, and we want to thank her for all that she does. And um, yeah, that, that's the truth. And and it's great to see Jasmine again. She was a uh, an invaluable uh, member of of our staff. Uh, the uh, just one of the the truly great people we've had the blessing of being served by. And they make me and you look really good most of the time. We and, definitely couldn't do it and, without them. That's right. And and they they get the only credit they get is the satisfaction that. Uh, knowing that they help people and, and made things better, and uh, they deserve a shout out every once in a while. Absolutely, if not every day. <laughs> well, this, as I mentioned, this is a, a local government show. You know, it's not a politics show. It's uh, it's not going to be as exciting as Meet the Press or something like that. Uh, but I want people to understand who live in the Highlands a little bit more about what you do and how it impacts their lives directly here in Louisville and here in the Highlands. And some of that I think starts with just maybe a little basic understanding of of what your office and what your responsibilities look like compared to mine, for example. We talked about Krista and Jasmine being in your office. What, what does your office look like? You have multiple of them. Where are they? How big is your staff? Just so people sort of understand that kind of thing. Well, we have, uh, obviously, I have a Washington office, and the Washington office primarily handles policy. The, our our const, for primary constitutional responsibility is to make the laws of the country. So that's uh, where we're focused on, on the policy side and the lawmaking side. 
but a very significant part of our job, as a matter of fact, probably an equally important uh, role that we play, is to be our, our constituents' liaison to the federal government. And when they have problems, whether it's they getting their disability uh, application expedited, whether their passport expired and they're leaving in two days and they need that expedited, whether they were uh, they had earned medals in the military but had never gotten them. The, the list of problems that exist between citizens and, and the federal government are, is very long, and we help with those. But in addition, uh, we are constantly trying to help local government in accessing federal resources. Mm-hmm. And so if, if uh, you had a constituent in your a business or a, uh, a uh, nonprofit that was applying for a grant, uh, we would try to support that grant application with whatever federal agency was uh, responsible. And uh, sometimes it's just le- writing letters of support. Sometimes it's making calls. Yeah. I, I mean, when, uh, when, we, uh, when the, the, the city tried to get a, a, a Choice Neighborhoods grant uh, which they, for uh, uh, the Russell neighborhood, and uh, we... We met with uh, federal officials trying to talk to them about how important it was, what a transformative uh, uh, investment that would be. We did the same thing with Shepherd Square. Mm-hmm. We're now in Smoketown um, recording this, and that that was another instance in which we were very active in trying to get support from the federal government for that or get, be selected for that. We also, the Tiger Grant that was uh, uh, granted for Dixie Highway modernization, Yeah, uh, we were very active in, in supporting that effort. So um, <clears throat> we do basically what people like you and the mayor uh, ask us to do when it involves the federal government. Yeah, it's clear that, you know, I think for a lot of people, when you think about um, the federal government, you think about money. And obviously money makes the world go around and it makes things happen. And um, I was an intern many years ago uh, for Future Fund, which was sort of the partner with 21st Century Parks that helped build the parklands of Floyd's Fork. Mm-hmm. And this was in the waning days of sort of the the earmark era. And I know uh-huh. when you came into office, and I think you were part of a pretty big sweeping ethics reform that really started to address sort of the bridge to nowhere and the pork barrel politics that we were used to. I will say that at the time, I can recall Senator McConnell and maybe others helped us get $38 million for the parklands of Floyd's Fork. And I sort of have two thoughts. One, with Senator McConnell still being the Senate Majority Leader and with you being the House Budget Leader, and with Secretary Chow being the, the Secretary of Transportation, and with a president who may only be able to agree with everybody about infrastructure, I just sort of wish that you know all the people that have an interest in Louisville could reach out and get a big bunch of money for a special yeah. transportation project here in Louisville. But are those days sort of just truly behind us? And I guess maybe my sub-question is, is there still an opportunity there, or is that me thinking too politically and not really the way that it, that it should be done? No, it's, it's a really good question, and it's very timely because we're uh, actively trying to reinstitute uh, earmarks. We don't want to call them earmarks right? <clears throat> because that name, for some un- mostly unfair reasons, has, has become pejorative. But we, uh, we're going to call them something like Article I expenditures or Article I investments. But 
uh, what we've found over the last few years, I, when when I came in in 07, uh, took office in 07, and we we had earmarks then. We put in some reforms so that you had to um, sign an affidavit, basically, that you had no personal interest in that would be affected by a particular earmark. And that cleaned up a lot of the abuses. Mm -hmm. And then we we kind of adopted a policy internally that we would not give any earmarks or consider any earmarks to uh, for-profit enterprises, that it would either be government or nonprofits. And there was one ex- exception to that, and that was the, a company that does work for the Defense Department here. And they, the Defense Department asked us to sponsor an earmark for them because it was critical to an, an initiative that they were doing. But we, there were enough safeguards in place, I think, to protect the public. Mm-hmm. And the positive side of earmarks is that, uh, and a lot of people don't understand this, is that it doesn't cost the taxpayers any more money. Mm-hmm. But what it does is uh, it says, in any given program, let's say we have a senior citizens housing initiative and we appropriate $2 billion a year for it at the federal level. If, if we don't have uh, designation by lawmakers, then all of that money gets allocated based on bureaucrats. Mm-hmm. And so we're basically t- ceding our, our jurisdiction in and, a and, way and to federal agencies. I imagine, is so difficult and, oh, because, again, the scope of what you do is global. That's right. So exactly. you can only keep your eyes on so much at a time. Exactly. So there are a lot of good reasons uh, to reinstitute them, and our leadership is working very hard right now to figure out a way to do it so that we can do it on a totally bipartisan basis mm-hmm. uh, because n- nobody wants to walk that plank alone. And uh, we're making progress. I think you'll see some of that. And that, that will enable us to, to make investments that we might not otherwise make. Yeah. Um, you know, and obviously we have a, a much smaller scale appropriations kind of system here in uh, Louisville Metro government that allows us to have some discretion and take some initiative in funding things that aren't just uh, part of the administration's uh, budget. Yeah, just one more thing. Yeah, before, actually, the first $45 million that was awarded for the new VA hospital came via an earmark that I, I requested. Okay. And uh, so we got $45 million. Mitch added $30 million in the Senate, so that was the first $75 million uh, for the VA hospital. And then recently there was news that I think maybe the balance of the funding is Well, or... what, what was announced was that the president's budget included $400 million gotcha. for the hospital. The president's budget is was dead on arrival in, gotcha. in Congress. So... Um, but I think that was a good sign. That mm-hmm. means that once we do budgets uh, and spending decisions, that that money will will be in the in the whatever the ultimate package is. Before I, before I get to the budget, I will like to touch on your new responsibility, which is an, an awesome responsibility. And, I, and today is tax day. I thought I read somewhere that your budget was due today, or there's some April fifteenth deadline for what the federal government is supposed to do with the budget. But it's, yeah. it's loose. Well, it's it's loose. Yeah, by law. The, there is supposed to be a budget resolution adopted by April fifteenth. That has not happened since I've been there. Okay. <laughs> so, and that's I'm in my thirteenth year. Uh, we we did not put forth a budget resolution this year because we the the Senate we knew the Senate was not going to do one. That you, in order for it to be meaningful, you have to have both the House and Senate approve of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we knew the Senate wasn't going to do it, and, and so we decided it was a waste of time. 
So we went another route to start the, the appropriations process, which is the actual decision about where the money is spent. Yeah. Well, let me, like I said, I, 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 do, I am interested in learning more about your new role. But um, before we totally leave the topic of earmarks, I mentioned transportation infrastructure because obviously Louisville's economy is so, uh, is, you know, was founded on logistics. And some of our assets here are part of the national and global economy. You think about you, our air facilities, you think about our river ports, the inter- interstate highway system. Do you have a particular uh, view on our on our big transportation infrastructure and its place in the country and is there any any area that you think if you could you could point to what needs the investment the most whether it's flood protection for for the river or whether it's a massive investment in the airport that you think is the most important for our economy well obviously we're investing a lot of money in the airport they're embarking upon a hundred million dollar investment in renovating and modernizing the airport and uh, that's going to be very important. I think right now, probably, uh, we've done a good job with bridges after a long, long struggle. Uh, I think making sure that, uh, that the highways are, are sound, um, I, probably water is, I would say, the top, uh, the top priority right now. And not just in terms of interstate commerce, but and the flooding issue and so forth up and down the Ohio, but also our water systems here. And that's one of the things that uh, you know people experience on a daily basis here because we've had so many breaks in in the sewer system, and mm-hmm. um, and that's true of many many places in the country, particularly urban areas. You know, mm-hmm. Part of our water system sewer system is 150 years old. Right. Uh, that's and that's true of again of a lot of cities. And so, is there a federal program? And I don't want to go off to a big tangent. Is there a federal program that's considering sort of the crumbling pipes under all of America's older industrial cities? And Ab- absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And we, we talk about infrastructure all the time. I think there's going to be a major infrastructure proposal put forth by the Dem- House Democrats. Hopefully we can work with the White House. They say they want to work with us. Uh, and uh, we can get something done. But water systems and sewer systems are included in that. You know, locally, a lot of land use politics is sort of spread between you know, urban sprawl and new infrastructure, building sewers out in the green fields and that kind of a thing versus maintaining what's already crumbling in our inner cities and our first ring suburbs and our second suburbs. Is there a same sort of land use politics split in terms of uh, the federal government? You obviously represent a primarily urban area. There's obviously a lot of people who come from Sunbelt states with explosive growth and new infrastructure. And do you anticipate sort of a pull, in, a tug and pull between a federal program that really reinvests in our older cities versus sort of subsidizing sprawl? Or is it are the dynamics the same nationally as they probably are here locally? Oh, every every bit as uh, as dramatic and um, and they represent a serious challenge for the future. Mm-hmm. It's one thing that. Uh, that some of us talk about a lot is that you have this urban-rural uh, clash in the country, and it, uh, it unfortunately breaks down into partisan bases. But more importantly, you know, more than 85% of the country's GDP is now generated in urban areas. Mm-hmm. And so when you have a disproportionate representation of, urban, of rural areas, both in Kentucky and the state legislature and in, uh, in Washington and Congress, you've got a serious problem. And I heard the other day, by 2040, 30% of the people will repre- be represented 
by 70% of the U.S. Senate. Can you say that one more time? Right. By 2040, 30% of the population will basically uh, control 70% of the Senate. Wow. Conversely, 30% of the Senate will represent 70% of the people. And again, when you consider the the uh, GDP percentage of GDP, it's even a greater disproportion. I mean, when you hear those numbers, you have to assume that there must be some... I mean, you, hear, you start to hear about change on the horizon, whether it's getting rid of the Electoral College or other things. Don't you anticipate that with those kind of numbers, something will tip by 2040? I would think it has to. Uh, I don't know where the leadership's going to come from to do that, but one of the proposals I heard the other day, because changing the Electoral College is something that would require a constitutional amendment. Mm-hmm. It's not going to happen. Uh, but the, the other option that is available to Congress is to increase the size of the House. Mm-hmm. And when you increase the size of the House and you actually re- better reflect the population disparities, then you change the votes in the Electoral College and you give states with more population. Pack the House. Yeah. Gotcha. And that's perfectly legal. And the, the size of the House has not changed, I think, in, in 100 years. Hmm. I think 1912 was the last time we actually increased the size of the House. But that can be done by the Congress itself. Interesting. Uh, before I veer off too far, I wanted to ask you— um, or just to mention one other thing and get your thought on it. I think people understand that you're sort of Louisville's uh, congressman, but I was looking at the third and fourth district maps, and so you really represent something like maybe 90 or 95% of Jefferson County, if I'm right, and the area, I guess, coincidentally, that I mentioned before, the parklands of Floyd's Fork, and then also, I'm sure it breaks your heart, Valhalla is not in your <laughs> is not in your district, but is in Thomas Massey's 4th right. District. So, so, yeah, so, so just <laughs> tell me a little bit what it's like to have, uh, you know, that part of the community not really right, uh, not, that you're not directly responsible for. Right, well, that, was, sure changed in, that was changed in redistricting after the, the 2010 census, so it was changed for the 2012 elections. Uh, I, before that, I did represent the entire eastern part of Louisville Metro, and then... Uh, I, there were 10 precincts in southwest Jefferson County and uh, Oklahoma that I didn't represent. Mm-hmm. So this is actually a funny story. Brett Guthrie, who represents the 2nd District and who represented those Oklahoma and South Jefferson County districts or precincts, came to me and asked me if I would trade him mm-hmm. uh, those 10 precincts for 10 precincts in eastern Jefferson County. Well, being a Democrat, I, I didn't really care, but I said, you know, that would make the district probably four or 5,000 votes more Democratic. Mm-hmm. So why not? So we, we asked the legislature, the General Assembly, to do that. And they did, but they didn't give them to Brett Guthrie. <laughs> they oh. gave them to Thomas Massey. And they gave Brett some other areas. So uh, out of 630 precincts in Louisville Metro, I have uh, 620. Okay. And uh, so I, I have virtually the same constituency as the mayor. The, the area I don't represent is geographically large, mm-hmm. but there are not many people in it. Although it is, I think, the fastest, one of the fastest growing, certainly mm-hmm. one of the most um, vulnerable to uh, bad growth, if not yeah. if not done no, right. Very true. And it's and in uh, a beautiful part. I mean, yeah, well, and agriculturally and, and environmentally, very rich part. What do you? And I still represent part of Valhalla. Okay. Okay. So, so <laughs> Floyd's Fork runs through the golf course. Okay. And I don't represent the clubhouse, but I do represent some parts of some holes. So I can still say I represent Valhalla. How, how closely do you 
I mean, you know, for example, all of the Metro Council people, we have border areas. I border on several different um, other Metro Council districts, and if something is going on right across my line, I'm obviously still interested in it. How how closely do you still uh, keep keep an eye on what's going on in the Parklands area, or coordinate with Congressman Massey to make sure that? And because you know, for people that don't know, his map is sort of a weird, sprawling. Um, horizontal district that goes across sort of northern Kentucky from, I guess... It goes near Ashland. Yeah, okay. So it's... Uh, Yeah. And, you know, you might worry that uh, his oversight of that particular area, especially in uh, Democratic Jefferson County, might not be his primary focus. Do do you all communicate frequently? Do you see him in the halls? Do you have anything... I mean, you don't have much in common, it looks like, it appears to me, but... No, I I get along very well with Thomas. Okay. Um, And we do coordinate just like Brett Guthrie and I do on the other adjacent parts of the district. And that's maybe a little bit better example because you have uh, Bullitt County that he, he represents. And Bullitt County, in terms of the, the economy specifically uh, surrounding Worldport, uh, is inseparable. Oh, right. I mean, you know, sure. and, and so our economic interests in my district are very much affected by it what happens in Bullitt County as well. So we we are in constant... And I imagine the southern Indiana legislators as well. You all a- absolutely. work together pretty regionally on economic development, those sorts of things? Absolutely. And, you know, Fort Knox is not in the 3rd District, but certainly it impacts the 3rd District. And we have many people now, since Fort Knox is not really an active military... I mean, it's, it's civilian military for the most part, and many of those uh, people are my constituents who yeah. work in Fort Knox. So, you know, just as many Southern Indiana residents are working the yeah. third, third district and vice versa. So, yeah, you, you, can't, uh, you can't separate those, and you don't want to. I mean, I think that's obviously also reassuring for people to hear because, you know, the people you mentioned are maybe of a different political party. <laughs> they might have areas that are more rural in parts than yours, and I don't think you hear a lot of stories about cooperation on this sort of micro right. level, right. Uh, and that's important for people to hear. Yeah. Uh, so to look to look back locally again, you know, you're sort of um, you're you're a, you're a newsman, you're a journalist, and you have a long history in that. And I'd like to actually go back 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 and ask you about some of that stuff. But mm-hmm. how you know with a with with responsibility that literally spans the globe, and you have to be aware of what's going on in national security issues and hot spots all over the planet, uh, and you also need to sort of keep an eye on uh, what's going on in the various parts of this big city that you represent most closely, and also, and also you're part of Kentucky's congressional delegation. Do you have a, how do you sort of um, organize your thoughts and in, in the way you do everything from read the newspaper in the morning and make your to-do lists? For example, you know, I represent District 8, the Highlands area, but I obviously am a, a, a metro councilman for the whole city. And so I tend to think about what's going on in my district first, but I also have enough bandwidth to think about citywide issues. Mm-hmm. I can, I mean, I can only imagine that that challenge for you is, is, is maybe different. Right. Well, my oath of office says I will preserve and protect the Constitution the of the United States. States. And so my first, my first obligation is to the country. And... That's a little little bit different, but so the, the good news about that is that generally when you're talking about those issues, in my mind, there's never much controversy. I mean, we, we now have, I don't want to get issue-oriented to Trump, Go ahead. He's, but President Trump has strain, strained that a little bit because particularly with the, in the area of immigration, which is 
has really never been a partisan uh, dyna a partisan issue or question, but involves national security, clearly. Um, trade and those things where our, our national perspective often comes in conflict with our local uh, needs and, and priorities. So first is, first is the country, uh, but then it's my district. I guess the Commonwealth of Kentucky is third. Mm -hmm. Although, the, again, the issues rarely break down sure. where you have to prioritize one or the, or the other. And I mean, I know, for example, you've been very interested in things like mountaintop removal and issues that are distinctly non-Jefferson County but impact the state. So a Absolutely. And um, you know, it's things like... Um, you know, criminal justice reform, a national issue, but we have certainly uh, local questions arising with police stops and, and so forth. And I live among the people who are directly impacted by many local policies and sociological factors. And so those are the things that, uh, you know, I get feedback on mm -hmm. more every day than I do on the Mueller report. Yeah. <laughs> And this isn't a question about uh, Mayor Fisher particularly, but when you sort of keep an eye out on the city of Louisville, you obviously live here, you read the newspaper, you're as in tune with what's going on as anybody, but you're, but you're a legislator. Do you, do you think about and sort of judge what's going on here as the, as, the, as the city's chief executive, how the mayor, whether it's this mayor or Mayor Abramson who preceded him, or is sort of running the city and think to yourself, well, I would do this different or I would do that different, or is it just a totally different... Um, uh, viewpoint that you take towards towards oversight of the city, and you're more concerned about policy issues and and helping people individually, and how what's going on here relates to to national bigger picture issues. Do you, you know? Do you sort of like to play armchair mayor, or you don't have time for that in, at home? Oh, I do sometimes. Yeah, and I generally tell Greg what I think. I, yeah. I actually texted him a week or so ago about an issue, and with my opinion, and yeah, he said we talk about it. But it was totally within his jurisdiction and not mine. Does that would would the, I'm not saying hey you should run for mayor although you'd be great <laughs> at, at anything. Does does that interest you at all? I mean obviously that kind of executive job and I'm also not asking you if you're going to run for president. D does an executive job uh, interest you or excite you in the same way that being a legislator does? So they're obviously two very different things. Okay, so after um, 13 years in this job, I at well, before 13 years in this job, I would have said never in the world would I want to be that. Uh, but I've changed. I, first of all, I've met a lot of mayors who are now in Congress, mm -hmm. former mayors who are now in Congress, and they said there was never a better job than being a mayor. Oh. So, and, and I, you know, Greg Fisher and I are very close. Jerry and I were very close. So, and I, I saw what they did and how they did it, and I, I can see that there is greater opportunity to actually feel like you've accomplished something mm -hmm. in those roles than you can in Congress, mm -hmm. particularly in today's environment. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you, you get a, a Shepherd Square project done or you get an expansion of the airport or you fix a sewer. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, those things are concrete and we rarely have those types of uh, sources of satisfaction or accomplishment. Yeah, and I mean, I'll just note, you know, several of the presidential candidates are former mayors. Pete, Pete Buttigieg is sort of, people read about him because he's currently the mayor of um, of, or of South Bend, or just recently, I, I guess I'm confused, but Julian Castro was the mayor of San Antonio. Cory Booker was the mayor of Newark before um, 
before he was a senator, and yeah. so it seems to Bernie me... Bernie Sanders was a mayor. Yeah, oh, was he the mayor of Burlington, ago, yeah, wasn't he? Yeah. Right. So um, as a city guy myself, I think that's really exciting to have some more people with urban views <laughs> uh, running for president. Um, I don't want to, you know, we're, this. the shows go quickly, so I want to turn just very briefly to um, the media and, and also in the past and sort of look back on how you got to where you are now. Because, you know, when I was younger, you Leo was your baby, and even before that, I guess you started a magazine mm-hmm. called Louisville Today. I didn't know right. too much about Louisville Today. What was that? So Louisville Today was a slick city magazine that is very comparable to Louisville Magazine. Okay. And we... Uh, I started it, and I'd come back from Washington, where I had been a staffer for Marlo Cook, a U.S. senator. Mm-hmm. And when I was in Washington, I became familiar with the Washingtonian magazine, which is still around, great, great publication. And I said, "Wow, that would go really well in Louisville. I think it'd be worth trying." And so a couple years later, I started Louisville Today. Yeah. And we were in competition with Louisville Magazine, which was then owned by the the Louisville Chamber of Commerce. Mm-hmm and was strictly a promotional vehicle. Mm-hmm. And w- so to me, there was a clear open lane for a, a true journalistic venture like I was starting. Unfortunately, what I realized was, too late probably, but I, I still value the experience that we survived five and a half years, but there is only, there's a limited universe of advertisers for that publication, that mm-hmm. kind of publication, regardless of what the editorial content is. Mm-hmm. And so, and we were competing with a subsidized publication. Mm-hmm. So it didn't matter how much advertising they had, they were gonna stay alive. For us, advertising was critical. And um, so ultimately we realized that it probably wasn't viable. But the other beauty of that experience was that while we were doing Louisville Today, we started a little uh, tabloid and we actually, we took over a, a little tabloid that was published in old Louisville called the Manly Messenger. And they were getting ready to go out of business. We took it over and said, we want to change the name and uh, uh, go in a little bit different direction, but we'll keep the primary circulation area. And we called it, we started it, we called it City Paper. It was um, actually more successful financially than the magazine. We had 45,000 readers. Uh, it was a monthly, wow. 45,000 readers a month. Uh, we won several journalistic awards, journalism awards over the years, the two years. And that was what sparked my ultimate uh, interest in starting Leo in, uh, a few years later. Uh, so that, that experience is was worth strong. It's still going strong. And I have to uh, shout out to my son who. I had the guts to buy it back. You know, I had sold it in 2003, and he bought it back four and a half years ago. And I think he's doing a great job with it. But it was, um, so that first experience with the magazine actually led to Leo. Yeah, and it's, you were not a journalism student. No. You were uh, an American studies major at Yale. At Yale. Uh, And um, best possible background to be a journalist. Okay. And tell, yeah, I was going to say, and then you were, went to Georgetown Law. Tell me, what, what is it, why is American Studies the best background to be a journalist? Because you, you, learn, you, you learn a little about a lot of things, and you learn about how things interact, like science and art, uh, history and politics, so forth, because all of those things are part of uh, American Studies, and of course, literature is part of that as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, 
it was a great background for for Jeopardy, mm -hmm. for playing Jeopardy, and a great background for both journalism and politics. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just note that I think the president from the West Wing was an American Studies major, yeah. so you know that you know it's not too late. Right. Uh, and you and former Mayor Harvey Sloan was an American Studies major at Yale, also. Yeah. And then you know, just before I wrap up, because this time does go quickly, yeah. you mentioned your time in uh, Marlowe Cook's office, which I guess is probably where your sort of first. Uh, post-school post government and politics career began. And for people who've maybe never heard of him, uh, can you just maybe take two minutes to, to talk about your experience there? I know that Senator McConnell was also there. I think Marlo Cook was, if not the mayor, he was the Jefferson County Judge Executive, which is sort of like the mayor of the county pre-merger. And if you could just maybe take two minutes to talk about that experience and what you learned from it and how it helped send you in this direction. I, maybe there's some listeners, some younger people who might be looking for this kind of experience themselves as they figure out what's next, and I want them to hear from you. Yeah, well, I was 23 years old when I went to Washington, 1971, and uh, I was the first couple of weeks I was there, uh, Marlo Cook, uh, Senator Cook, asked me to write a speech that he was going to deliver on the floor about uh, Richard Nixon's revenue sharing program. I won't go into the history of that. Uh, but I wrote a speech. I had never, I'd written speeches for myself before when I ran for student council president, but never for the floor of the, the Senate. And I wrote the speech and Marlo gave it. And then I remember vividly Chuck Percy, who was a senator from Illinois, walked over to Marlowe on the floor and said, Marlowe, did you get a new speechwriter? That was really good. And that was actually the first time I ever thought I could write. Yeah. It was some kind of validation. But the experience there was phenomenal. I mean, people don't realize that the country is run by 25-year-olds. Mm -hmm. It really is. My staff is, is relatively young, and most staffs are. Uh, I got lots of responsibility. Senator Cook was brilliant in that way. And, you know, I try to do the same thing, empower the staffers that I have to show their skills and utilize them well. Uh, I was there during Watergate, mm -hmm. during, during the Roe v. Wade decision, mm -hmm. and during uh, Vietnam. Wow. I mean, what more exciting time could a young person be in Washington? It was just incredible. And, uh, Certainly, you know, I, I got out, ultimately, politics came much later, mm -hmm. but my interest in politics, I kind of channeled into journalism as opposed to elective office until 2006, but the, the experience there uh, was pivotal in my life in many, many ways. And then Cook was a, I guess, he was a moderate Republican, right? Someone who I, I you know, I don't know much right. about, I read a little bit about him, and I think he... Um, he appeared to come out and be uh, to speak forcefully and truthfully about everything from Watergate to um, you know all sorts of issues that I think in today's political climate some people might not be as honest about uh, for political reasons. And if you just want to, and, and I know that his office spawned both you and Senator McConnell, so two very sort of different um, political philosophies these days. If you want to just maybe anything else we should know about uh, Mr. Cook, yeah. Well, he was like a second father to me, so uh, you know I can only say good things about him. He, but he was a true uh, profile and courage. He was the first Republican in the Congress to call for Nixon's resignation. Wow! In 1974, uh, one member of Congress, only one, had called for his, his resignation before 
Marlowe did, and that was James Buckley from New York, who was a, a conservative party member. He wasn't actually a Republican. Uh, so Marlowe was the first Republican. He did that in a year when he was up for re-election against Wendell Ford, a very, very challenging uh, opponent. And so he was an, we knew that he was an underdog going into re-election. For him to take that position and alienate, alienate a lot of Republicans in Kentucky because he knew it was the right thing to do was um, just uh, amazing. So, yeah, he's, he's not all that well-remembered, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, he, he was, uh, in his way, a, a very, very great man. Yeah, and he has uh, a tree that has lasted well beyond his actual time in office, and that sort of brings us back to the beginning when we were talking about all the people that work in your office and have worked in your office and who work in my office and the internship opportunities we have and um, you know how some of the best part of this service is what you do to enable other people to, to follow. Absolutely. Follow and you know, um, just as when Jasmine came to me and said she was leaving to go work for you and, and Krista Robinson said she was going to work for Barbara Sexton Smith and we had a communications person who's now the head of uh, public radio in Louisville, yeah. Stephen George. When they get those opportunities, you know, I, uh, Carolyn Tandy, who was my district director here, who is now the national diversity uh, officer for um, uh, Texas Roadhouse, Texas Roadhouse uh, when they come to me, I say, wow, congratulations, that's awesome. I don't want you to leave, but... Godspeed. Yeah, but I, I take great pride in what what uh, staffers have done and and that's what this job is about these aren't lifetime jobs i mean you know they're generally working for less money than they could make in the private sector and they're doing it because they love public service but the the good ones go on and do great things yeah and somewhat i imagine one of them will be in my job someday that's right well that's a that's a good way to wrap we're right on time i just wanted to thank uh, Congressman John Yarmouth for being, again, our very special guest. We're really proud to have made it 25 episodes. I say it often. This is my favorite. This is the favorite 30 minutes or hour that I get to spend every month. Um, it's sort of our way to dip our toe into journalism using 21st century or technology. And, uh, you know, maybe we'll have you back for another special time before hey, our time here is done. Be happy to. Thanks. Good being with you. Thanks for listening to 8 More Miles, the Louisville Metro Council District 8 podcast. I'm Councilman Brandon Cohn. Please stay in touch with our office. Visit our website at www.tinyurl.com slash cmconed8. And once you're there, please subscribe and stay informed to receive our biweekly e-newsletter.